Thank you for listening to this week's message from New Day Community Church in Vandalia. We hope this message encourages and blesses you. Look us up and contact us at newdaycommunity.org. Hot out this morning, isn't it? Step outside your front door, you're like, boy, it is hot. All right. You ready for more Colossians? We are in Colossians chapter 2 this morning. So I don't want to take away from anything that's happened in our series so far. But really, everything the last couple of weeks has led up to this moment. So (laughs) it's not my fault. It's the Apostle Paul. It's the way he wrote it. Okay, so the letter of Colossians is what we're studying over the next few weeks. And uh, it gives us a chance as a church to really go deeper into one area of Scripture. And uh, we try to do this every summer, and it's it's a great time that we spend together just delving into God's Word. So we're in Colossians chapter 2. And Paul, just as by way of recap, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church, to the Christians who are in the city of Colossae. And uh, that's a city that's in the, in the ancient Near East, in the Middle East today. And uh, basically, he's writing to them, and we think he's near the end of his life. He's most likely a prisoner in the city of Rome. If you know anything about Paul's life, at the very end of his life, He spent the last couple of years of his life in prison in Rome, a prisoner because of what he was preaching and a prisoner because he was um, sharing the gospel and um, the Roman emperor did not like that and put him in prison. And ultimately, we believe he was executed for his faith. And right at the end of his life, he's writing these letters to different churches, really giving us his vision of the Christian faith as a pastor. And he's also addressing specific issues that are happening in these churches. Colossians... They had a problem. They had a really big problem that they were dealing with. And Paul is writing this letter to address that problem. And in chapter 1, Paul, because he's so far away from them physically, he's not able to travel to them. He spends a lot of chapter 1 reestablishing the bonds of connection that he has with these Christians, with this church. And he's basically saying, look, I'm praying for you. I'm really invested in your success. I want you to grow as Christians. I want you to grow in the knowledge of God. I want you to grow in all of these areas. And then last week, Pastor Cameron shared on Paul and his work for the church. He calls this his labor for the church. And today, we get to the actual problem that Paul is addressing. And it's a problem that Colossian um, believers had, and it's a problem that actually we also have. And so I think there's something important for us this morning because we have the same problem as a church that the Colossian church had, and Paul has something to say to us this morning about that problem. Does it sound good? Does it sound good to hear about a problem that you have? Yeah, Yeah, does that sound good? All right, let's look at that. So this is our passage for this morning. It's Colossians 2, starting in chapter 8, or verse 8, rather. And let's, uh, I'll just read it through. It says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought into fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith, in the working of God, who raised him from the dead, When you were dead in your sins, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, 
having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Have you ever been working on something? And you say to yourself, this part's a little bit more complicated. When I do this step, then the rest of my project's going to go a little bit smoother. And you know if you kind of rush through this one step that it's going to make everything else that you're going to do afterwards a little bit more complicated. You might be working on something at your house, and you find that problem that you're working on, and you're like, if I don't take time to put this, shim this door in right, or put this window in right, I know in a couple of years I'm going to have problems with this window. You know what I mean? Well, Colossians 2, verse 8, when it comes to reading the Bible, is one of those verses. That if you take a little bit of time to unpack it, and to dig a little bit deeper, makes the rest of the book go a lot easier. So we're going to take a little minute, and we're going to spend some time unpacking this. And this is really getting at the heart of the problem. And Paul, you know, there's a, when you read this through, chapter 1 into chapter 2, if you're just reading Colossians, you sense, when you hit this verse, you sense that Paul has shifted gears. And he's like, okay, we're getting on to business. This is what we're really here to talk about. And so he talks about some things that actually are quite complicated to understand. Even Bible scholars are not quite sure what to make of this. The original language was Greek. And especially that that phrase, the elemental spiritual forces of this world, people don't really agree on what that means. They don't really know exactly what that is. But we're just going to pick one of the ideas and we're going to run with it this morning because I think it'll help us make sense of it. But just know that these are kind of complicated things that Paul is talking about. And if it doesn't make immediate sense to you this morning as we've read it, that's no problem because we're going to spend a little bit of time. And I also have a helpful illustration. Most of my illustrations for sermons involve food. So I have some food with me this morning. So in chapter 1 of Colossians, Paul says, "Um, I sent a faithful minister of the gospel called Epaphras to come and share the gospel with you. Paul says he's a faithful minister. That's important because what Paul is basically saying is, you don't understand the gospel properly, Colossian church, and it's not my fault because I sent Epaphras, and it's not his fault because he's a faithful minister. So whose fault is it? The church, okay. So we know they heard the gospel, and this will represent the gospel, because each of us have a hunger that needs satisfied. We want to understand what it is to live in right relationship with God. We want to know how to live our lives. We want to know what it is to live a good life, faithful towards God. We want to know how we overcome sin, and our own self that drags us on day by day. Well, the Colossians were the same way. They wanted to know how to live before God. And Paul sent Epaphras, and he brought them the gospel. And this looked good to the Colossians. They said, I am hungry. This gospel that you're showing me looks really good. This will satisfy my hunger. And Paul said, how do you know In this this passage, we'll see, Paul says, how do you know if something that looks good on the outside is really going to satisfy your hunger? When you hear something, how do you know that it's really the truth? We've got to look inside. You've got to test the substance of it. So, we test the substance of the gospel and we see 
that there's something there, right? There's substance. There's what we would hope to find. That this gospel would sustain us, would fill our hunger. And Paul says, that's the gospel that you received from Epaphras. The problem is, it didn't stay that way because the Colossian church existed in a city and in a time that had all of these different ideas about what it was to live a good life and what it was to live the right way. And we have these little snippets of it, and it's basically something that's called the Colossian heresy. And we have snippets of it from what we know about the time that the Colossians lived in. And we know about it because when you read through Colossians, you get little pieces of information that Paul shares. And this is what people generally think this wrong thinking or this wrong idea the Colossian Christians had believed. And this is kind of a summary of it. The first part is ceremonialism. It seems like they were really obsessed with different festivals and rules about what types of food and drink to eat and what was clean and unclean. Asceticism, they lived this very, very strict lifestyle, like the more strict you could live and the more that you denied things in your life, then the more holy you were. They really were fascinated with angels and spiritual beings. They had a failure to really grasp the fullness of who Jesus Christ is. They were obsessed with this idea of secret knowledge, which came from a philosophical idea called Gnosticism, which said that you had secret knowledge trapped inside of you that you needed to release and kind of become one with spiritual essence. And then finally, there was a reliance on human wisdom and knowledge, which was both influenced by Judaism and Greek thought. So we'll unpack this a little bit more in a second, but essentially what Paul is saying in this verse is, um, this combination of ideas that you see right here, um, that is hollow and deceptive. It seems good, it seems like the right way to live your life, but what you've done is added it to the gospel and it's put you in a dangerous place. So essentially what Paul is saying is, there's the gospel that you received, and then there's all of this human wisdom and these basic principles of the world, and the two of them don't combine, and you're trying to combine them. And Paul says, you know, you can actually make that choice. He said, you can choose to follow the basic principles. But he's like, it really starts to hollow out the gospel. So let's worship angels. And let's get really, really obsessed about following pure purity laws. And let's, if you want to, you can get really obsessed with human philosophy and tradition. And if you want to, you can really get worried about whether somebody is circumcised or not. And which was a sign about how you belong to God. And if you really want to, you can worry about all those things and you can include them in what you think is right. But the problem is, you're left with something that doesn't look like the gospel anymore. And when you try to eat it, it's never going to satisfy you. And who would want this? <laughs> and so he says in chapter 8, um, this is the deceitful and hollow philosophy that you're trying to follow, when really what you need is something that has fullness and substance to it that will actually satisfy you and bring you life. See, the gospel is this funny thing where the more you add to it, the more you actually take away from it. And that's what the Colossians were doing. It's actually one of the most difficult things in, in the world for us to do is to simply accept the gospel the way the gospel is. We always want to either take something away from it 
or we want to add something to it. But the bottom line is, you undermine it either way. So the Colossians are trying to live this life where they've followed all these, what seem like to us, really weird rules. Like, where'd they get all this stuff from? Actually, wouldn't have been strange to them at all. This, all of this stuff right here, this was actually just what they were talking about in everyday life. When they went down to the market to buy food, they would hear people talking like this. When they were gathering in their families before they were Christians, they would have believed this stuff. And what Paul does over the next few verses is basically just unpack some of this a little bit more. And what he's going to do is present Jesus as the real substance, as the real alternative. For in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought into fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. So, for us, we can read that, we can say, that's great, that sounds really good, but for the Colossians, Paul is actually just going like straight to the heart of the matter. And what he's saying is, in Christ, the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. So, the predominant idea at this time, by Greek philosophy standards, was that there was a separation between the material world and the spiritual world. Everything that was in the material world was evil, tainted by evil, was, was bad, was nasty, whatever word you want to use. Everything spiritual is good and pure and holy. So if you're a Greek person and you think this way, then after you think about it for a minute, then you've got a hard decision to make because you look at yourself and you say, well, I got this physical body. Is this physical body good or bad? Well, if you follow this Greek thinking, then your physical body actually is, is bad. You should try to escape your physical body in some way. You should, you should try to deny your physical body. You should hate your physical body. But you actually have a bigger problem. The bigger problem is Jesus had a physical body. So when the gospel came to Greek thinkers, it was really offensive because what basically Paul is saying is the gospel takes your whole idea of what is earthly, physical, physically physical and material and not good and what's spiritual and pure and holy and in Jesus Christ himself those two come together because he's fully God he's fully divine and he's fully human if you said that to a Greek person the type of people Paul's writing to they would say but those two things cannot exist together at the same time and Paul's saying doesn't matter because the gospel is Jesus Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. But there's another type of fullness that Paul talks about here. He said, you've been brought to fullness. It's not just Jesus who's full. You are full. Why would this be important? Well, this is important because in the Greek way of thinking, there was this idea of like pursuing secret knowledge, pursuing the spiritual, denying the physical, and it led to this whole lifestyle where you were always trying to outdo yourself and outdo other people. You're trying to live this pure life. You're trying to make it. You're trying to make it. And you don't know if you've made it because how do you know if you've lived a good enough life? How do you know if you've reached that spiritual purity that you're craving? And Paul says, actually, you're already full. You don't actually need to worry about all of that striving. And then he's also, Jesus is also the head over every power and authority. Again, we might glaze over that, but it's really important because 
this whole Greek way of thinking, they created this whole system where there was lots of gods and spirits and semi-gods and demigods. It was all of these different spiritual beings, and they weren't neutral. They weren't just hanging out in heaven, not doing anything. They actually got involved in people's lives, and these spirits would influence people's lives, and people would, would walk around, and they'd be worried about, is this God or is this spirit going to oppress me today? And it weighed on people's individual lives. It weighed on their minds. It weighed on their hearts where they thought, how am I ever going to appease all of these gods? How am I ever going to be right with all of these gods? If you satisfy one spirit, how do you know if there's another one just waiting to get you? And people lived with this weight. People in the Colossian church lived with this weight. They would have come from these backgrounds. And Paul says, you know, there is a spirit you should be worried about, but there's only one that you need to really worry about. And that's Jesus, because He is over every power and authority. Jesus is over all of this. But it wasn't just Greek ideas that the Colossian church had believed. They also had kind of mixed in some Jewish ideas. And we see this starting in verse 11, where it says, In Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands, your whole self ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. So, what we think the Colossian Christians did is, you know, if you're not quite sure which path to go down or which option to choose, if you have a way to choose all of them to cover your bases, then you might be tempted to do that, right? Have you ever ever done that? Where you're like, I'm not sure which option to choose, so I'm going to just do a little bit of everything, and that way I'm going to make sure I choose the right thing because it's going to be covered somewhere in that range of options. Well, that's what the Colossian believers had done, and they'd taken some ideas from, from Judaism as well, especially this idea of circumcision, which was basically an Old Testament sign that you belong to God, and that you knew you were belonging to God because you were circumcised, and it meant you were in this special covenant relationship. So what this tells us is the Colossians were really interested in knowing How do we know we belong to God? How do we know we belong to God? That's a deep question. That's a question we ask ourselves too. How do we know that we're God's? And so the Colossian Christians were using circumcision. And Paul basically says, ah, circumcision, you know, in the Old Testament, that was like this little bit of flesh that got cut off. He's like, but really, when it comes to Jesus, it's like he's just cut off all flesh completely. So basically, This whole idea of circumcision, let's keep the core idea, but he's like, basically, Jesus comes along, and he so completely and radically transforms who you are. It's like this whole new idea. So he's like, let's keep the idea of belonging to God. That's important. But we're totally rethinking what these things mean. He continues with this theme in the next couple of verses, too. He says, having been buried with Christ in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Okay, Paul talks, jumps from talking about circumcision to not talking about baptism. About being made alive when you were previously dead. And what is Paul doing in these verses? He's basically saying, look, it doesn't matter which way you think about it. If you use Jewish ideas or if you use um, Greek ideas, it doesn't really matter what way you think about it. The ultimate thing here is that Jesus Christ so completely, radically transforms everything else that you knew before, 
that it doesn't really matter which side you're coming from. It doesn't really matter which combination of beliefs you have. The real thing is to focus on Jesus because Jesus is the full embodiment of absolutely everything that you are hungry for. Um, if you want to delve deeper into the whole idea of baptism and our identification with Christ and his baptism and coming from death to life, it might sound familiar to you. That's because in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 to 14, Paul talks about this. He said in verse 3, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Everything we're talking about is an image of coming into new life through Jesus. Paul's not done with his cultural references. He has a couple more to throw in here. In verse 14, he says, Jesus has canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. These are more closely aligned with Roman ideas. And Paul says, you know, basically, um, when you weren't a Christian, you had a debt that was so big you were never going to be able to pay it. It didn't matter what you did. It was just so big. And that stood against you. That condemned you. And in that time, if you had a debt that condemned you, um, you weren't just destitute, often you were thrown into prison. So often this whole idea of having a debt and bankruptcy and being in prison and enslaved, those ideas really went together. And what Paul is saying is you actually have freedom from all of that because Jesus has paid this debt. So this is language that's really familiar to us. Well, this is where it comes from in the Bible. But this final verse is really interesting. Paul says that Christ has disarmed the powers and authorities. Remember those evil spirits that we had talked about, all those gods and semi-gods and all those things that were oppressing people and um, if you're a Colossian Christian, you're basically at this point in the letter saying, well, why is this the case? Like, why is Paul so confident in Jesus as the fullness? Why is Paul so confident that Jesus brings us from, from um, death to life? And basically, Paul's working his way towards this final verse where he says that Jesus has triumphed over all of them because of the cross. He says, you want to know that Jesus offers the fullness of life? Look to the cross. How do you know that there's substance to the gospel? Look to the cross. The idea here is that when a Roman general, so the Roman Empire is the ruling empire at this time when Paul's writing, and they would go out and they would fight these battles and expand their territory, or you know, they would fight these military victories. And uh, there was no way to document that, you know, other than people would write, you know, so-and-so won a battle. Um, there was no photographs, there was no video. And so what they would do to prove how mighty their victory was is a general would win this battle and he would come back to Rome or one of the major cities in the Roman Empire and he would ride on horseback and he would parade through the streets and all the people would come out and they would say, wow, you're a great general, you've won this great victory. And he would display how amazing his victory was because he would capture all of the defeated soldiers and all of the defeated people and they would be paraded in chains behind this general. And people would see the proof was right there in front of them that this general had won this victory. And that's what Paul is talking about here, where he's saying, you know what? It's the equivalent of that general walking through the streets of Rome, 
this idea they would have all been super familiar with. He says, you know what? Jesus has made a public spectacle of the powers and authorities. Jesus has beaten them, and he's beaten them so much that he's dragged them along behind him in Jesus' victory parade. And you know who's on the winning side? Those of you who put your faith in Jesus rather than those of you who put your faith in the powers and authorities. So you want to know who's on the winning team here? You want to know who the victor is? You know who you should pattern your life after? It's Jesus Christ. And next week and the following weeks, we're going to hear more, even more on this theme. Paul's using these verses to introduce these big ideas about Jesus as the victor. So what does this say to us today? I've got five minutes to stir the pot about what this means for us today. Because when we read Scripture, we want to understand the historical basis. We want to look at the context. That's what we've done this morning. But ultimately, we don't want to just read Scripture and say, that was a nice history lesson. I'm glad I learned about some Greek philosophy, about Roman generals. But ultimately, for the Bible to fully do its work, we need to think about our own lives. And sometimes the Bible makes us feel real warm and fuzzy. And we love those times. But there's other times the Bible makes us feel a little uncomfortable. And which way do you think this is going to go this morning? (laughs) Warm and fuzzy. Who wants the warm and fuzzy version? Because I've not prepared that one, to be honest. Um, Again, it's not my fault. It's what's in the Bible. Because what Paul is saying is, look, it's really tempting when you're a Christian to believe all of the other messages that are out there in the world. Even though you become a Christian, you don't suddenly become protected from all of these different ways and messages that we hear in our culture. That's basically what happened to the Colossians. They just kept hearing all the messages of their culture, and they just kept believing them. And Paul said, that's not accepting the gospel. That's something different. That's hollow. It's deceptive. And so it's the same for us today. I think it's naive if we think we're not hearing the messages of our culture, right? Have you ever seen advertising? Have you ever done something in your own life and you're like, why don't, you look back, you're like, why did I do that? Like, that was weird. Something was driving you to do that, right? So each of us have values and we have things that are really important to us. And they're shaped by our culture. Like, we didn't just wake up one day and think, you know what, I'm going to live my life this way. They're shaped by lots of things in our culture. And I'm going to just hit on three, and then we'll just finish service, and you can come and tell me how upset you are that I mentioned these three. (laughs) Because basically, it's having a look at our culture, right? So I want to talk about freedom and liberty, individualism, and the definition of success. So in America... We got this real love to talk about liberty, which we also talk about freedom, right? We don't want to be beholden to anyone. We don't want anyone telling us what to do. We want to make our own way, right? The whole country's founded on that idea, right? So is liberty and freedom a good thing? Yeah, I think so. I don't know what he's asking. Yes, yes, that's okay. You can say yes. (laughs) But 
there's a particular way that that's explained to us, right, over and over and over. In the media, in our schools, we're told freedom and liberty is great, but this is what it means, right? And we often see it come up in like conversations that are, can get pretty, pretty controversial, right? I mean, we see this uh, even with Congress this week, right? The whole thing with gun control. You know, some people say, it's my right, it's my liberty, it's my freedom to have this right, right? And other people say, but I have a right to be protected, like to be feel safe, right? And it's a question over liberty. And this is in our world. But the Bible also has a way that it talks about liberty that goes beyond whether you have the right to do this or that. It's a liberty that says, you know what? There's something you really do need to be freed from, and it's sin and death and hell. And um, you know how you get rid of that oppression? Through Jesus. Um, America's also the most individualistic culture in the world. Um, I'm not just saying that. Lots and lots of studies are done on this type of thing. Some countries and some cultures are very oriented towards the group, right? They think about the group first. If you've ever been to Latin America and we go to Japan, it's group first, right? America's actually like way the other side. So we actually just legitimately, and it's not to make any one individual person feel bad, it's just the culture we live in, it's the air we breathe. We are told over and over all the time, think of yourself first. And your whole life is all about becoming the best version of you. And so, again, we're all made unique in the image of God. We want to affirm that. But ultimately, what's the vision of your life? Is it to become the best per version of you? Well, in some ways, but it's also to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And those two things might not look the same. And so, Paul was challenging the Colossians and saying, you know, like, this whole thing about, like, the material world is bad and the spiritual world is good, I mean, you just accept that. Like, that's normal for you guys. And for us, what's normal is to think of ourselves first. And so, what might the gospel say to us about living life that way? And then, finally, what does success look like for us? You know, our culture has these very, very um, strong messages about what it means to be successful, you know? And it's kind of that idea of the American dream where ultimately you live in this nice house in the suburbs, you have the white picket fence, the perfect family, you look amazing all the time, you've fulfilled all of your dreams, right? We're sold this message. And this is advertising. This is what you want to orient your life to look like, right? This is the type of person you should be. And that's in some ways where the Colossians went wrong. They had a vision for their life. They had a way of thinking about their life that kind of got off the rails a little bit when you lined it up with the gospel, and so Paul is saying, you know, there's a different way to live your life and be successful in God's eyes. It's to put Jesus first and to look to Jesus as the fullness of everything that you're looking for. Because in Jesus, you'll find true freedom, you'll find true fulfillment. And Paul comes in and says the gospel, it just totally changes and reframes what we think is the norm. And so... The Bible has different ways to talk about this. Jesus himself used two images I think are really helpful. The first one is he said, seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. Like, seek those things first. And then the other one is he talks about this person that finds a tre treasure buried in a field. He finds it and he's like, this is the best thing ever. What does he do? He sells everything else, right? He's like, I've got to get the field because I've got to get the treasure. 
And sometimes it feels like that with the gospel, right? You're like, man, is this, man, do I really just go all out for this thing, for the gospel? That would be kind of crazy. But that's what Paul's saying this morning. Go for it. Christ gives you fullness because he's full. And we already know that he's victorious. So you don't have anything to lose. Paul invites the Colossians into that. And that's what we're invited into this morning. Let's stand for a few minutes and we'll just pray to close. Father God, we thank you so much for the gospel. We thank you so much for Jesus Christ, the victorious king, the one who has defeated all of his enemies, all powers and authorities, bow before Jesus. And you invite us, Lord God, to walk into this victorious life, a life where we can live in fullness. God, I pray that you would help us, each one, to enter into this life of putting our faith in you, Lord Jesus, where we turn from our sin and we embrace the gospel message that Jesus Christ is victorious. We thank you, God, for our time together this morning. We thank you, God, for this chance to worship together, to be together as a church. God, I pray that you would bless us each today, that you'd be with us, that you protect us. In your name we pray. Amen.